Hello and welcome to this, the 16th episode of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I am your host, Angus Og McAnally, Artistic Director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, more recently a director and producer here at Rise. I'm a 15-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene and a third-generation theatre maker. And as ever, we are coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar. And as ever, we are bringing you this podcast free of charge. We've promised that we'll never, ever charge for these interviews. But we are, as ever, asking you to put your hand in your pocket and support Irish theatre. Not necessarily just a Rise production show, but any show out there. Get out there, buy yourself some tickets. Or if you feel the ticket prices may be slightly beyond your reach at the moment, as ever, we would suggest that you go on over to fundit.ie, the crowdsourcing website. There are always great uh, theatre packages going on over there. And also, a site that was brought to my attention this week is a site called indiegogo.com, which is a a similar kind of crowdsourcing website. And David Nolan, who's uh, an actor and uh, fight director and movement director that many people here would know is running a campaign over there for uh, for a movie they're doing at the moment so you can go and check that out that's at indiegogo.com forward slash screaming dash guns as always there are also many ways you can support without having to put your hand in your pocket we would ask you to tell people about the podcast whether that's in person over a cup of coffee or just by sharing the link as a Facebook post or retweeting the link on Twitter uh, we'd ask you to subscribe to the podcast over on iTunes uh, although the fightnight.ie website is optimised for for iPhone. So if you're out and about and you're not able to download a larger file while you're out and maybe not on a Wi-Fi network, you can stream it from fightnight.ie. Just go to the podcast tab. That'll sort you out there. Uh, also, we're carried on radiomade.ie, which is another website. We would always ask you to go back and listen to all the other episodes that we've put out. Leave us a review on iTunes, which really, really helps us in our chart position. Or simply just rate us, if that's going to be asking too much. The rating system is a five-star system. It is literally one click. Please go over there and, uh, and give us a rating if you can. You can follow us Rise Productions on Facebook. We're facebook.com forward slash Rise Productions Ireland. Or you can follow us on Twitter. We're at Rise Ireland. So it has been an absolutely crazy week. This week saw me taking part in the 24-hour play project uh, at Project Arts Centre, which was being run as a fundraiser for DYT, which was an amazing 24 hours. By times, absolutely terrifying and also brilliant and enthralling and a, a really wonderful way to spend 24 hours with what has to be said, the most amazing cast and crew this side of a theatre anywhere this year. It was just remarkable. Um, and so I decided for all you wonderful podcast listeners who maybe didn't get a chance to uh, get in and see the show, or even for those that did get to see the show but didn't get a chance to be behind the scenes with the huge group of us that came together to make this really spectacular night of theatre, that I would try and put together a little podcast-style roving reporter package for you guys to give you a flavour of what went on. And, uh, and so we've got enough lot to get through this week so I'm not going to stay talking for too much but here it is this is a little few minutes of a of an audio sample of a taster of uh, of what it was like to go through those crazy 24 hours this is the 24 hour play project so I've just arrived here in the Project Arts Centre in Temple Bar here in Dublin and the place is already buzzing there are amazing amounts of people knocking around already some of uh, Ireland's most high profile writers and directors and actors and stars of stage and screen and a lot of people from Fair City. This is uh, a little bit terrifying, but it's all shaping up that this could be a very memorable 24 hours. The fact of the matter is it's just about quarter past nine now, and in 24 hours' time, essentially the show will have just finished. And at the moment there isn't a word written down, there isn't a director assigned to a single play, there isn't an actor cast. This is going to be one hell of an adventure, ladies and gentlemen. Lock up your daughters, this is about to get emotional. So, it's just about to go half nine. Here we are in the Project Cube. I am sitting beside guest from episode four, Mr. Paul Reed. Paul, tell us what you're up to. I'm trying to think of a witty thing uh, to write under my name for my photo so the writers can have a look and think, he's hilarious. And uh, give me a good part. Is this the scariest thing you've ever done in your life? Yeah, I'm pretty nervous now. Well, I was really excited earlier. I'm actually really nervous now. Seeing everybody, the cast, is, the cast and crew and... All creatives are absolutely... It's pretty spectacular. I'm just looking around the room going, if a bomb hit this building now, Dublin Theatre would be wiped out. Uh, it's, uh, it's emotional. Right, let's see what happens as we kick in. Thank you all for coming. Uh, it's really appreciated for everybody giving up their time, their talent, uh, whatever level of it you have with you. Um, this event, um, for us, I'm speaking on behalf of Dublin Youth Theatre as a board member there, uh, works on various levels for us, and one of those levels is to... Um, is for DYT to connect with the professional community and to, uh, to remind everybody in a way. Um, 
So, without further ado, I would like to introduce you from New York, from the 24-Hour Play Company, Philip and Kelsey. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome aboard. Thank you so much for joining us uh, for what we hope to be a first annual event in Dublin, Ireland, to uh, do the 24-hour plays, to raise money and support Dublin Youth Theatre, which is a fantastic group. Kelsey and I were able to do a workshop with some of the young people uh, this afternoon, and it was an exhilarating experience and a great way for us to get the ball rolling uh, and get excited about this evening and what's going to happen tomorrow. And then one more thing. Director seven, actors eight. Thank you so much. Tom Swift, you're one of the writers here. In the name of Jesus, it's now half ten. What time have you been handing the script in the morning? Five o'clock, apparently. How are you feeling at this stage? I am very, very scared. I am very, very scared, uh, but a deadline is a beautiful thing. Okay, you've just seen the presentation of all the props and costumes. Any great ideas? You don't have to reveal them so far, but is anything sparking off for you? Uh, it's got to be the candy pouching, uh, posing pouch. Uh, it has to be uh, prop stroke costume of the day, so... I'll try and fit it in. It might be emotional, Tom. I'm not going to take any more time. I know you're going to need it. Enjoy tonight. Um, in a sort of dramatic fashion, we're going to bring in a director <laughs> through this door, also to maintain the integrity of this building. We don't want to you know, have it all fall over. A director will come in. They will introduce themselves. They will say, this is the writer of the play. Um, and the uh, cast will be announced. And then you are all... Uh, just if we stay together for the time being, once all the casts are announced, we'll all head off in our various different directions. So, um, if I may introduce... <laughs> Right. Okay. I'm Alan Stanford and I have a play by Pauline McGlynn. Aren't I lucky? Yes. The play is called My Name is Brian. And the cast are Peter Daly, Louis Lovett, Avi McCall, and Mae Fitzgerald. I'm Wayne Jordan, and I will be directing a play called Protest by Deirdre Kinahan. And my company, our company, will be Pat Nolan, Carl Shields, Clelia Murphy, and Amy Conroy. I have in my hot little hand a play by Elaine Murphy, and starring this play are the A team of Georgina McEvitt, Jacinta Sheeran, Angus O'Donnell, McAnally, and Rory Murphy. And we'll be rehearsing W Theatre. Peter Daly, you are standing on a street in Temple Bar at half eight in the morning with a cup of coffee and a script. Do you want to tell us what's going down? Just doing 24 hour uh, party people plays in uh, Dublin Temple Bar for Dublin New Theatre. Um, we're working on a uh, script that is called uh, My Name is Brian by Pauline Midlin. Now I've got a, one question for that because your, your name's Peter. Yeah, so yeah. how are you going to tackle this play? I don't I think the first thing is getting your head around the fact that your name is going to be something other than your own name, i.e. Brian. So I think once we get through that challenge, we should be fine. Excellent. I wish you the very best of luck with it. Willie White, we're backstage in Project. It's about half an hour before showtime. How has the experience been like for you and how are you feeling right now? It's fantastic. I was delighted when I was asked to do this. Actually, I was ultimately I was delighted. I wasn't sure if I was free and then when I found out everybody else was involved. I thought, my God, I would have paid to do this. It's been brilliant. And what it is, more than anything, is a testament to the talent of the people involved and also towards, to their generosity towards Dublin Youth Theatre, which I know well and which lots of people feel a lot of affection for and long may it continue. Do you feel slightly less pressure on you, given that the writers had to come up with a whole new play, the actors have to go out there and do it? Are you slightly secure and, and stay in the safer zone? Absolutely not. I feel a huge responsibility to the writer, who I haven't spoken to at all, uh, in, in the whole process, I actually did get a clarification via text, so I feel a huge responsibility to do justice to her work. Excellent. So I'm absolutely not off the hook. I love it. But also, you're looking for me if I make a bag of it. And luckily for you, you scored the A team with, uh, with your well, student. Yeah, lucky me. <laughs> Thanks, really. I'm going to go and buy some props. So there you have it. Like I said, just a little audio sample and taster of what it was like to go through those 24 hours. It was really a remarkable night. I know they did a huge amount of fundraising for DYT and that will go to, to great use up there. That's a you know a wonderful resource for young people throughout the Dublin region. And, uh, and I was very delighted to be able to give me time and, and energy to, to support that great cause. Uh, a wonderful night. It, the, the show brought the house down. It was a, a jam-packed 
upstairs in Project Night of, of Real Magic and, and feel very honoured honored and privileged to have been a part of it. So, like I said, we've an awful lot to get through this week with that little audio package and, of course, our standard interview. This week, our guest is an absolute legend, uh, a guy who I'm so hugely fond of. It's the brilliant John Olihan, who just brightens up every rehearsal room he ever goes into. The guy has more energy than I have ever seen from any other actor. Everything's brilliant, everything's fine. He is so happy to go about his day's work. Uh, He's just an absolute tonic, as people say, to have in a rehearsal room. Like I said, as usual, I'm not gonna talk too much. I'm gonna let John do the talking. Here is the wonderful John Olihan. John Olihan, thank you so much for coming to have a chat to us. Pleasure. Um, Okay, every week we take it back to the very beginning and ask people how, when, and why they decided to get into the business. Was there ever a light bulb moment for you? Did you just decide one day, or was it someone, something that was always there for you? Well, I was, you know, it, it, I suppose it was always in the back of my mind, but I hadn't, I didn't go directly at it, if right. you know what I mean. I was in the usual school plays, and you know, it was great fun and all the rest of it. But I grew up during the 60s, and it was the time of great change. Right. <laughs> As we all know. And um, the Beatles had, were, were, came on, came on line and, or came on the scene. And of course, everything followed from that. And there were a small little group of us in the little town of Kells, where I grew up. And uh, we all jumped on the new pop bandwagon right and we decided well if they can do it in Liverpool they can do it in Kells <laughs> so without any of us knowing how to play an instrument we decided to form a band sure why not <laughs> so we um, we saved up and we got I went up to Walton's and I got a 15 shil- 15 pound Hofner guitar and um I thought it was great because Paul McCartney had a similar bass. And uh, um, Eamon Carr, um, who went on to play with Horselips, saved his pennies and bought a drum kit. Like from, I remember it was John Murray's in Camden Street. And he used to buy it like in bits, like a stand. And then two weeks later, he might buy a pair of drumsticks. Then, <laughs> A month later, he might buy a kettle drum, but gradually over a period of 18 months, he assembled a makeshift drum kit. One of the guys who was actually working, because we were all at school at the time, one of the guys who was working, he was a carpenter, he could afford a Selmer amp. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Which we all plugged into, and uh, a bass guitar, and we started, and of course, the other guy, he had it another guitar he was supposed to be early so we gradually learned our three chords right and so we thought we were fantastic and uh, Eamon brought home we used to go up to Dublin and buy all these obscure records like yeah, Muddy Waters and uh, Howlin' Wolf and mad jokes that were never heard in this country before like obscure blues things and Eamon couldn't bring them home because he was living with his granny and he just couldn't play them. <laughs> they were like devil music. I mean, they were so off the wall. I mean, they were really crude blues music. I mean, they're ten a penny. I mean, they're all on ads and everything. But at the time, like, it made the Rolling Stones look like choir boys. Right. I mean, okay. Really rough stuff. And he used to play them in my house. And we decided, well, we'll do them. You know, because they're only three chords, you know, blues chords. And we did, and it was kind of like mad. Like we were doing stuff that nobody was doing. I mean, particularly in the show band era. Mm. You know, we were doing, you know, Howlin' Wolf and stuff like that. You know, crazy stuff. And of course, we were all up here and we couldn't grow hair. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember one gig, we actually went and we bought crepe hair and stuck on locks. Wow. You know, that's how mad it was. But uh, we kind of got going and we started to learn a bit and we we got the group up and at it and um, we organised a few gigs. Now we've been at it a while, you know, like about maybe a year or so. And we, we organised a few gigs around 
um, Navin and Trim and we joined up with a couple of Dublin bands and we brought them down and we had we never heard before a kind of like a, a, a like groups all together in one place I mean you used to I mean there was the five club and there was the scene club and all these little basement clubs in Dublin and like outside that there was no such thing as groups you know beat groups it was all show bands yes but we decided to put on our own show and we rented the Catholic Young Men's Club <laughs> and we dimmed the lights which was unheard of right and there was more the police of course everybody started to canoodle in corners and all the rest of it <laughs> the priest came in to just check on the happy teenagers going about their dinner and so Sodom and Gomorrah <laughs> and the music I mean we were up full volume I mean yeah. like there was no subtlety in what we were playing or how we were playing it and uh, of course we had the heat wave I mean I think we had Granny's Intentions and we had a few bands who were just starting off in Dublin I mean much, they were much better than we were but uh, I mean it was something else but I remember Aaron for the night for the couple of hours work we did £22, which was about, well, it was over the average industrial wage at the time. Wow. And I remember going, God, 20, this is, there's some money in this, you know. Yeah. But uh, it went on and on and on and on and on. And then, of course, we left school and we went to college and, you know, Eamon joined the Mead Poetry Group and uh, one of the lads says, oh, well, I'm, I'll stick at the carpentry and, you know, the whole thing yeah. kind of disappeared. And I went up came up to Dublin and, and then we formed another band which is a little bit different it was a kind of a, had a folky tinge to it and we started to write our own stuff and there were four girls involved and it was kind of a little bit the only way I can describe it is a little bit like Anuna right okay and uh, that kind of and again there was nothing like this around and we were playing there was nowhere to play right okay and it was kind of like four part harmony you know with acoustic guitars and we started off doing Simon and Garfunkel and Mamas and Papas and stuff like that and then we got into the Incredible String Band and that was we were trying to kind of like do stuff like that you know with bells and you know pipes and all sorts of kind of weird instruments and again we I remember playing one night in uh, Liberty Hall it was the only venue we could get you see there was no place there were pubs there was pubs and there was the odd place like Liberty Hall that you get a gig now you yeah. wouldn't get big money for it you know you just go on and do it. and it was a late night gig and I remember everybody in the audience is drunk <laughs> and we went out and we were all in kind of we were trying to tell the story of ancient Ireland that was the that was your mission that was the mission <laughs> okay and we had a series of songs that talked about the two de Danan and the fur bulg and all the rest of it and we had all explanations of the you know the spiral symbols and it was all in the songs and the music and the eerie like real hippie land like right, okay. you know and uh, we walked out in all this gear the audience <laughs> all they wanted was Danny Doyle and you know how's your father Mary you know <laughs> they wanted to clap along they weren't clapping along to us but they soon got rid of us. They just, they weren't listening at all. Wow. But we got a big review in the Evening Herald say, this is disgraceful that this band or bands like this can't be, have a venue to play. So we kept on trying and there was just no place to do our stuff. And we attempted recording it, but it was just, Impossible, you know, with no money or anything, yeah. or uh, students. And eventually, the one girl says, Well, I have, I'm going to England, I'll offer a job. And one girl says, I think I'll marry this, this one, and I'm going to Canada. And, uh, you know. So I decided, because we were going down a kind of a theatrical road, that I would go in and learn production values in the Abbey Theatre School of Acting. So as that when I come out and we reformed, that I would have a big bundle of knowledge to kind of put into action and world domination would ensue and world domination would ensue so um, 
I went into the Abbey School of Acting. And how was the process of getting in there? Was there auditions? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, there... yeah. You had to apply. It was all kind of, it was very formal. It was, I think Ernst Blyde was coming to his, the Abbey had just moved. It was 1969. Right. And there were three years in the new building. And Ernest Blythe was still, he, he was on the board, he was chairman of the board. Right. And he had just left the big, the, his, his post of president of the Abbey, <laughs> or whatever, you know, king of the Abbey. Yeah. So he, he was now, um, I think Alan Simpson was kind of deputy artistic director or something like that he was called at the time, at, the, at that time. And I remember you had to apply and you had to say you had Irish and you had to do three audition pieces and one piece in Irish. Right. So I went in, applied, was called, went in and Frank Dermody was the curator or the president or the whatever, he, he ran the Abbey School of Acting. So he brought me into a little office, which is the first office as you go up the stairs in the Abbey. Right. And it's, it's a tiny little office. And he said... Do it here in front of me. And so I did, I think it was um, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow from the Scottish play. Right. I did a, an obscure piece from, um, I think I just took it off a bookshelf, oh, a play, and opened it. Oh, there's a long speech, I'll just read that. <laughs> it was a piece, it was an Arnold Wesker play that had the original cast I think it was, uh, I can't think of his name, I'm just offhand. But it was a, one of these, you know, new North of England play, playwrights. Right. And it was a play about making strudel. Sounds uh, riveting, John. Uh, but it was, I think it was about relationships. Of them. I hadn't a clue what it was about. I can't even remember the name of it. And I did an Irish piece. Right. And something else. Sang a song or something. But Dermody says... All right, you're in, you're in, you're in, you're in. Come in, come in, come in. You're in my production. And he gave me two parts. And he says, we're opening next week. <laughs> so basically, I think he just was short of bodies. Right. And whether I was good, bad or indifferent. You were coming I in. I was coming in anyway. <laughs> so he got me in. I was playing part, speaking parts of that. And I couldn't believe it. I said, Jesus Christ, I'm, I'm in the Abbey Theatre. You know, I'm in the School of Acting. And not only that, but I'm playing in a professional production with lines at night. Wow. I said, this is amazing. And I didn't even want to do that. I wanted <laughs> to come in to do production and, you know, learn about flies and sets and lights and sound and all the rest of it. Yeah. And here was I. So I did it, and of course, well, I don't think it was because of me, but it closed <laughs> I mean, it was ridiculous. You know, I mean, there were 64 characters in the play. Right. You know, I mean, 64. I saw the, a program for it recently, and there were 64. And there were about, there must have been a, a hundred actors. I mean, there were all the School of Acting, which was, there were 50 in the School of Acting at the time. Wow. And there was like, there were all these freelance actors, and the Abbey Company, which was about... 30 yeah. at the time so everybody was in it because up in the main stage well it was in the peacock by the way sorry in the peacock that is ridiculous yeah. and it was about the battle of Clontar and the the relationship uh, it was written by Joe O'Donnell who's still around yeah. uh, the relationship between Brian Baru and his Nordic wife right and the the whole you know events leading up to the Battle of Clontarf and so they were trying to recreate the entire Battle of Clontarf on yeah. the Peacock now, stage I won't go into it but there is a <laughs> short history of <laughs> I could write a 200 page account of what went on in the few days that I was involved in it because it was full of events and full Jesus. of stories but anyway, it it went on, and it was great. It was great fun to be having. It. Wow! So then, so then you were in the school, Abbey the school, Abbey school then. What was the experience of being in the Abbey School like? Was it a nine to five, five no. days a week? Terrible? No, two days a week. Two days a week. From two nights a week. Okay. From six to eight. 
Right. Tuesdays and Thursdays. And all 50 of you in one class? Yeah. Or broke it up into smaller groups? No, no, all 50 in one class. I'm Frank Dermody. Right. Who ran it. And Bill Hay. Okay. Remember Bill? Yeah. The um, stage director. And he would come in, basically, and just rant at us. <laughs> he would get up on the piano, and he would say, this is how you fall. And he would literally throw himself on, onto the ground. And he'd hurt himself. <laughs> And he felt that this was a skill that any aspiring... Oh, he said, if only the abbey could burn down again, I could go to the roof. I would throw myself off and land perfectly on the street below. (laughs) And then you could see the skill in falling on a stage. I mean, it was all about falling and kissing and walking and, you know, doing ordinary things. And so... What was, the, what was the process like then from, what was the evolution from being in the Abbey School to ultimately becoming a part of the Abbey School? Well, at the time, <clears throat> equity, you had to have, I think, 40 words as a professional actor right. to be a member of equity. But you, you couldn't get the 40 words unless you were a member of equity. Now, it was very strict. Yeah. I mean, it's a pity it's not as strict now. Yeah. I mean, but that, you had to kind of figure out a way of doing it. So what I did was, I, I, I don't know, I, most people in the class got in right. to equity. And it was kind of like a big celebration. When you, when you got into equity, it was like, you boys were in the business. Yeah. Like, work is going to happen. So um, I remember I was in Borsal Boy, one of its reincarnations. And I had the required amount of words, but I was in the Abbey School of Acting. But during the run, the Abbey School of Acting finished. Right. So it ran into, I'm out of the Abbey School of Acting. So I had the amount, I was working on a professional stage with 40 words, but I wasn't in the school. So I was able to apply after the school ended. So got into equity and that was major achievement. Wow. And then... You went on to join the Abbey Company after a while. Well, no, there's a lot happened in between right, that. Okay. Um, <clears throat> after that, um, I, like we were all during the Abbey School. I was there for what two, nearly three years in the Abbey School. And was there a set period no, of time that you well, should be in the Abbey School? There was that the Dermody period ended after. I think it might have been a- April. It ended f- pretty swiftly, and most people were let go. Okay. And then there were um, three of us brought back from that core, from that big crowd of people. Okay. And there was, that was Rhino Grady, myself, and Veronica Duffy. Right. And we were asked to join a new school under Padalam. Padalam, it was more, it was full time. There was a fee involved, which, because I had no money, they said, well, look. We'll pay a fee. We'll give you a scholarship. Excellent. I said, all right. (laughs) Because I literally... Yeah. I left. I I had a bit of a job, but if I was going full-time, I was going to have to leave the job. So I left the job, and I was getting money. Like, I think it was a fiver a week doing extra work. Right. Now, you got the odd part with a few lines here and there. And these were being shows in the Abbey itself? Yeah, in the Abbey. And... Because at the time they did big productions with huge crowd scenes and all the rest of it. And uh, you got your few bob at the end. Of the, you got fiver at the end of the week, which I was, I think it was four quid rent for me digs. And at a pound. And I'd say at the time you could buy eight pints for a pound. Like it was a half crown each for a pint. <laughs> I mean, it was great. But uh, it might have been a little bit more at that time. At that, at 1970 it might have been it wasn't much more than three and six right. anyway a pint but uh, then I used to get the odd little letter from home with a few bob in it from me mammy but uh, then after that I was hanging around the abbey for a while and then the, the, uh, Joe Dowling and some younger members of the company started the Young Abbey. Right. And then eventually Joe asked me and a few others to form a core group separate from the company. 
called the Young Abbey. Okay. And uh, we then went on tours and a bit like Team now, you know. I yeah. mean, it's basically it was the forerunner of Team, and we went around just in a van with sets and set up in schools and went on tour. So we literally I'm on the road since about 1970, you know. And I was never in places like Galway or Ballinasloe or Athlone or Ross. I was never in any of these places before in my life because, I mean, it was Kells in Dublin, Kells in Dublin, Kells, and that was it. I was never anywhere else. Right. And this was a whole new departure. Go around in a van around Ireland, you know. <laughs> it's great. Wow. But um, then after that ended, team started. And some of us went over into team. And... Uh, Kind of because what happened was the Abbey didn't want the young Abbey. Right. The board said, no, we're going to get rid of it. I don't know why. I'm sure there's another Joe Dowling's autobiography will reveal all. And um, then team started. We moved into team. And uh, we were. I was in team, I think, for about a year. And then the ITC started. Yes, so and tell me a bit ITC. about the ITC. For, for those of a younger generation who may yeah. not remember, what was the ITC? Well, the ITC was started, and the first artistic director was your grandfather. Right. Ray. And Catherine, my wife, was the ASM on the first show, as far as I can remember. And uh, what was it called? Was it called London? Was it London Assurance? Can you remember? I'm not sure. Could be. Yeah, I think it might have been London Assurance with Godfrey Quigley and Veronica Duffy. And, ah, oh, there's a big cast in it. And it's like this new departure, which it was an event. Um, the National Theatre. It was a national theatre, another national theatre, funded by the government. But its main remit was to tour. Yes. It came into Dublin for, like, the same length of time as we went to other as it went to other places. So it'd be two weeks in Cork, two weeks in Galway, you know, a week in Athlone, a week in the smaller towns. Yeah. And then it'd come into Dublin as part of their tour, but only for two weeks. Right. And usually played one of the bigger theatres, like the Gaiety or the Abbey or wherever. And it, as I say, Ray was the first artistic director. And then Godfrey and Godfrey Quigley and Phyllis Ryan took it over and then Joe Dowling was asked to take it over with Tony O'Doy as general manager Wow! and when Joe went in he asked a whole lot of new people to come in as a core company so Catherine myself and we were unmarried at the time uh, Catherine myself Anita Reeves Alan Stanford and Patricia McMenamin I think the five of us were and Barry I think Barry McGovern I'd been involved at the time. We were we were brought in as the kind of a core company and then other people as well, depending on the play. And was that a full time gig in the yeah. way that the kind of Abbey Company? Well, was I think it was a year. It was a no, it was a seasonal contract. Right, okay. I think it you know, you you might have got three plays and then there was every possibility that you're it'd be renewed. Right, okay. No, but it was the core but the people who were brought in were only brought in for that particular play. Okay. So it went on like that for several seasons and we did we did like Thieves Carnival Juno and the Peacock As You Like Us um, we did the Cuckoo in the Nest uh, uh, Eppingham Camp uh, just like a whole series of different types of plays and was there much of a rivalry then if this was set up as kind of a, a separate national theatre that was on, on the road was there much of a rivalry between ITC and the uh, and the Abbey then? nah nah there was no rivalry as such. But were the, the Abbey weren't touring much at that stage then? No, 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 no. God, not at all. I don't... I, the odd one, you, you get the odd Gaeltop tour. Right, okay. You know, and, but the, and the odd... The Abbey would go down to Cork. They'd right. just, like, shift down to the Opera House and back again. But they right. didn't do, you know, like, the Clonmel's and the Tralees <laughs> and... Places like that. Now there were no. I must remember there were no theatres in any of these towns at the time. There were just halls. Mm. I mean, even Galway had a theatre. I mean, wow. we went to the Jazz. The Jazz. Yes. It was the gym in wow. Galway, and uh, 
that's where you did the play. And Julian Erskine, of course, was he was the he was production manager, but he did everything. Like right. he did, he lit the shows, he put up the sets, he like at it, in amazing time. You know, I mean, he was just Superman wow. at the time. And uh, we go in in this van, empty the sets out, and now there was a you, you recruit. It was a professional setup. It wasn't like the Young Abbey. It was like a fully paid you know, professional gig and the, the sets were done by professional scenic artists yeah. and everything. But it was, uh, but Julian like was, drove the, the whole thing, it was fantastic. And so from then, did you go straight from ITC into the Abbey Company then, the Abbey Company proper? I yeah, yeah, right. I think uh, Joe moved and then Christopher Simons took over and then there was a few other artistic directors and we were still there. And then around 19, when was it? 1980, 81, 80, 81, 81, I think the whole thing collapsed. Right. Uh, and at that time, Joe was artistic director of the Abbey. I think there might have been a few months where we were all wandering around doing bits and pieces. But Catherine and myself, and there's a whole other crowd of people, but we were one of the, we were one of the the, the few that were brought in from the ITC into. Um, into the Abbey Company proper. And at that stage in the Abbey Theatre, were there still big, iconic actors that you would have kind of, you know, not grown up watching, but whatever, that, yeah. in those early days of the career, looking up and going, wow. Yeah. Those, those well, Frank Dermody Abbey- used to say to me, he said, you know, he used to instill into us the, how untouchable Abbey Theatre actors were, that they were like, nearly priests, that they were, in touch with God every night that he used to say they are in touch with the divine so that he ordered us that if we met an Abbey actor in the corridor you never made direct eye contact really? yeah so if you saw Des came and Pat Latin walked along the corridor you lowered your eyes and you walked by and you weren't you did not speak until you were spoken to I mean, it was like, we were, we were like novices <laughs> in the content. <laughs> and these were the high priests of the thing. Now, I'll tell you what it did. It made you appreciate. You kind of went in awe looking yeah. at them. But he used to say, they are in touch with Jesus every night. You know, <laughs> so they have direct contact with the unknown, you see, because of the, what they did on the stage. And, uh, but I told this to Des Cave years later. I said, Des, you know, for four years I walked by you. And I, I said, you might have wondered why I didn't, you know, say hello to you. I said, I said Dermody told me not to make eye contact with you. Don't mind speaking to you. So, um, he said, he said, fake sake. <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. But uh, what you did was you just kept your mouth shut. And and uh, talking to actors afterwards, they had much, the, the Abbey actors at the time had much the same training. Right. You know, they, they, they looked at their F.J. McCormick's and their May Craig's and, the, and the, you know, and had the same reverence yeah. for them as, you know, so you, so you were like a sponge, you were soaking up stuff, do you know what but I mean? But I mean, it's such a valuable thing to do in such a valuable way to learn I think just yeah. be surrounded by really great performers and, yeah. and if you if anyone has the good sense just to shut up and listen yeah. and, and watch what's going on I think it's even more valuable than going through a couple of years of oh, well uh, I mean you, you know, can do all this you know what I mean like for instance Harry Rogan and I've used it several times he said just little techniques he had mm. and like you just say how do you make the audience how did he make the audience laugh there and like he like he Harry pushed it to the limit. Yeah. I mean, he was great. He would never leave the stage without a round. Right. Never leave on. Think well, and if he didn't get the round, he'd come back. And I mean, <laughs> he would literally do a false exit and come back and, say, mm, and go back again until it yeah. happened. Now, now he would never force yeah. it like himself. I know actors, some actors who used to clap like that in the wings wow. and kind of precipitate it. Uh, 
a kind of an applause. But no, Harry, Harry actually did it on stage. Like he might shake a leg like that, <laughs> just shake his leg before he left, and it just, you know, the up they go. But little things like that, and you're you're just looking at just, and, and it's all going in. And I mean, you couldn't write a book on it because it's it's kind of only when you get to do it yourself. Yeah. Does it come out? You say, oh, what about if I did that? And you don't know where it's coming from. And then really it's coming from stuff that you've soaked up. So going from one iconic institution in the Abbey to another iconic institution in Glen Row, you, how many years did you spend on Glen Row? Eight. And how spectacular, phenomenal, bizarre was that time? Well, uh, well, it, it really, I mean, I was in and out and in and out. I wasn't a permanent member. I mean, I wasn't up with Mick Lally or, yeah. you know, any of the rest of them, or Emmett Bergen or, you know. I was just in and out. I mean, I played Finbar. Yeah. The, the barman. And I'd be, I'd be on for two weeks and off for three weeks and on for one and off for four and, you know. So, in a way, I was able to continue with theatre work. Right. Doing Glenrow as well. And a lot of people used to say, oh God, I'd love to be able to do that. A lot of the permanent people, because they couldn't get out. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? The only person who, was, who managed to be able to do it was Alan Stanford. Yes. Who was able to, I don't know, by some juggling and <laughs> I think he had double, you know, and I don't know how he did it, but he yeah. was able to be in Glenrow all the time and also do stage work. <laughs> and in terms of profile for you then I mean Glenrow was such a big show it was the show that everyone watched I mean did it did it help you profile wise or does it hinder you do you start to get a little bit typecast or, or, or what's the well, story about it no you see if you were in Glenrow in a big way you got recognised in the street and all that yeah. but I was just on the margins right some people regular. it never bothered me right people would come up and say ah pull us a pint there Finbar now they were few and far between. Yeah. But other people were pestered, like Mick was pestered, and, you know, Mary McAvoy was pestered. I mean, you know, like, people following them around the supermarket, seeing what they have in the, the, in the basket. Do you know what I mean? Right. And kind of going, oh, look what they're buying, look what they're... You know, the, this kind of intrusion, you know. Yeah. Now, if you put yourself on the box, that's the thing, you know. Yes. So for you, was it a happy balance between having a nice little stream of money coming in well, I tell you what it was. It, Glenrow money, the right, the money I was earning because you were only paid for the work you did. Yeah. It, it helped us because the, the lads were small at the time, the, my two lads, and it just was great boost sure. to the to the wages from the theatre. You know, you couldn't live on it. Now, if I didn't get theatre work, I wouldn't have been able to live on the money yes. from Glenrow. But it was I, it was fantastic. When, when it came in you know it was it was a great help yes well now you've mentioned Catherine a couple of times briefly is it a wonderful thing to have uh, a partner in crime who is also in the business and understands it or at times is that a difficult thing in terms of you know maybe both you've been on the road or whatever else I can't see how it would have worked out any other way right I really do I really can't because we both understand what we're going through it, and also, it worked out when the kids were small and growing that if I was working, Catherine mightn't be working. Yeah. If Catherine got a tour, and like tours were always on the, they were always on the books. Yeah. And if Catherine got a tour, like she went to New York three or four times, and like they'd be for six months. Now, it was, it just suited me to be out of work for six months so that I could look after the kids. We also had a huge fleet of babysitters on yes tour. of course and uh, but then Catherine would come home and then I'd go off on tour right and it wasn't that we planned it that way that's the way it worked out it was kind of like like boards or like you know like it, we did, if you planned it it wouldn't have worked out as well yeah it just fitted in like naturally that's what happened right you know and it's still going on do you know what I mean it's still Catherine now has She's gone into uh, Fair City. Yes. And I'm going to... Now, so she's at home. Now, the lads are grown up and, you know, able to look after themselves, I think. <laughs> Just about. <laughs> Just about. <laughs> so, uh, it's not... It, 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 you know, it, it doesn't... It's not as 
kind of tension filled as it used to be. Sure. But it's it's still going on and we're, we're still enjoying every minute. And still talking to each other. Which I, quite absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> so speaking about all this touring, uh, it seems that in recent years you've done an extensive amount of touring with Druid who yeah. are just this world powerhouse of, of theatre at the yeah. moment. What is it like being part of that overall Druid machine? It's the greatest crack in the world. Is it really? Yeah. It's great. And you know what? The, the whole everybody in Druid, I mean, they all, it's, it's very much an, everybody is Druid. Like actors, crew, um, you know, the administration. Everybody's involved and everybody is as equal to, as everybody else. And we, you know, like if there were like you go into a bar and like four of the crew are there and you join the crew. Right, you know, and and there is, you you join them, you know, as easily as you join for uh, actors from the company. You know what I mean? Or if there were office staff there, you go up and, I mean, it's that tight. Yeah. And with the result, that everybody's out for everybody else. Do you know what I mean? That there's no them and us kind of thing. Right. Okay. And, and then everyone kind of singing from the same hymn sheet. And everybody's singing from the same hymn sheet. It's great. How brilliant is Gary Hines? Great. Great crack. Right. Great. And the one thing. Now, people criticise Gary about all sorts of things, you know, about being a... But people say, oh, she's a taskmaster. She is. But if you t- take it in the wrong way, you know, it's, it, it can just kill your, what you, the work you're trying to do. You have to do it with a sense of openness and sense of fun and just a sense of banter that goes on, like fellas slagging one another on the football field. Right. You know what I mean? It's still great crack, but, you know, do it this way, do it that way, do it the other way. No, I, no, I won't. I'll do it this way. H- have a look at this. Yeah. And there's very free exchange. Right. Okay. She's not, she doesn't say, she'll say, I want a certain thing. Mm-hmm. Now, she might tell you how to get to that certain thing, but you might have a different way, but she's willing to listen to the other way of doing it. Provided that ultimately we all oh, get oh, to the oh, place you where... You get to the place where you want yeah. to get. Yeah. Right. Okay. And, and that can result in great crack. Right. You know, and... Lots of hilarious fun to be had. <laughs> and what have been the highlights for you? Because, I mean, there's been huge shows, like, obviously, the recent success with um, Big Maggie. Maggie, and but also things like Silver Tassie and stuff, which yeah. have kind of, you know, taken over the world, and, you know, big, scary plays. I yeah. mean, are, are there any moments that stand out for you or any particular shows that were particularly enjoyable? Well, no, I've only done, um, recently done, well, no, only done, Playboy, Tassie, and Big Maggie. Right, okay. I mean, it seems like a lot more. Yeah. But, but we brought back Big Maggie and uh, Playboy, we brought back, that, that, you know, so it's going back a few years. Yes. You know, or, or, because she brings back, if, if something is successful, why kill a bad thing? Or why kill a good thing? You know, just keep bringing it back. And uh, there have been offers from all over the world for Druid Productions at the moment. And what's it like? I mean, I'm thinking particularly about the time in the States, given that you know, Druid and Gary herself are, are held in such high regard over there. Are you treated like royalty? Is it big kind of Broadway experiences and lots of crack? Or, or what's it like being on the There's road? There's lots of crack everywhere. Right. Not only in the States, but just everywhere. And like, and, and also the, it's to do with who's in the, in the shows as well. You know, I mean, if you're in, like when we were in, um, I'd never been to the West Coast before we went with Playboy. So we just hired a, car and did the west coast highway and went down to santa monica and applauded the sunset you know wow and did all the touristy things and and drew would look after you so well like in a nice hotel and what more do you want it's a thing. <laughs> uh, am i right in thinking there's also an award nomination for the recent role with there Trump? is there is there is which took me by totally by surprise and is that a wonderful thing and is it great crack? How do you feel about theatre awards? Because some people are going to go, oh, you can never judge I these It's great. <laughs> I, I never thought. In, I said, nobody. I've never been nominated for anything. Really? Ever, ever, ever. So somebody rang on the sun, uh, Saturday, Friday night. Uh, they were obviously looking at the Irish Times online. Yeah. And rang Catherine, one of the cast of um, Fair City. And says, oh, con- tell John congratulations. And she said, for what? On his nomination. And she said, you're nominated for something, John. I said, for what? For what? The Irish Times. I, I mean, you, I mean, of all the parts that I've ever played, 
I never, it never even entered my head that Bourne would be up for a nomination. Be- well, mainly because I was getting such crack. Yeah. And, and it was, I enjoyed it so much. I enjoyed doing it so much. You know, and maybe that's why the more you enjoy it, the better you are, or whatever. Yeah. You know what I mean? I don't know. Well, I don't know what the criteria is. It seems to me that that is the John Olihan magic. I've been on the road with you a couple of times. Yeah. It seems to me that no matter what, if we're in the crappiest venue, or if we've been delayed in a tech, or if there's any kind of misery going on, where many other actors would be bitching and moaning and giving out, yeah. you always have this incredible youthful enthusiasm where <laughs> everything is just great crack. How do you keep that? How do you keep that magical spark in you? I don't know. I, I just I, I just enjoy it. Is it just that, that the job is what you love doing? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, people say, ah, sure, it must be, you know, back of the hand stuff to you, you know, no problem. And believe you me, every job gets harder and harder the older you get. Really? And, oh, yeah. I mean, years ago, I used, oh, yeah, I'll do that. On you go, no yeah. problem. Great, learn it, walk on, do it. Now, I was always very, I was, I always found it, I was always a very slow study. Right. And I always had to kind of be, oh, sure, be, I couldn't kind of wing it yeah. in any way. And lots of people I could see, Jesus, how, how, how the, the nerve to do that? I have to be kind of solid. But now I'm finding it, it takes longer for me to get to that point than it used to when I was younger. Right. What do you think of the state of Irish theatre now and the kind of the generations that are coming up behind you? Do you think it's in a, it, as good a place as it's ever been? Was it better before? Is it, are the younger crowd coming through all right? Well, yeah, I think they are. From what I've seen, the younger crowd are great. I mean, and they're, you know, energetic and on the ball and willing to learn and, you know, willing to try anything and try new things and, you know. But years ago, um. You had a couple of sort of innovators like Tomás McCanna and you had you know he brought in people you know like set designers and Hugh Hunt came yeah. over and but at the time it grew, the the family of actors like I mean I'm talking about in Dublin yeah like there was and then there was a family within a family there were little families within that larger family like the Gate and the Gate people always worked in the Gate and the Abbey people. Of course, it was a permanent company, so yeah. they worked in the, in the Abbey. And then there were other little families within this, but there was a bigger pool of actors who generally worked. Right. And everybody knew everybody else. And you knew if somebody came in, and again, the whole respect thing, you were nearly invited into this family. And if you did enough jobs, you say, oh, they, they would notice you. And then eventually you'd be having a drink with... Jeff Golden, or you'd be having a drink with Des Cave, or you'd be having a drink with, you know what I mean? And you say, oh, I'm being accepted into the inner circle. Do you know what I mean? Right. And so eventually, over the years, you become part of this larger family. Now, it was, that's how small it was. Now I find it's a big, amorphous mass of people who are coming and going. And, you know, I, I don't know how you'd even contemplate starting off and saying I'm going to make a living in this as an actor and only as an actor I just I just it's beyond me how you'd even go about it because there was it was it was small you know and you could get a job in the Abbey and it might go on you might get five jobs in the Abbey out of one yeah and then you might get another one and then if you knew somebody who was going up to do another let's say for instance you were working with a director who was going up to the gate or the Sheridans might be in, in the project and they had and they'd be asked over. So you were constantly kind of going, you know, within the kind of confines of all these people that yeah. were in the employers, like who knew you. Yeah. Whereas now I don't know how you do it. It's just there's so many people. So talk to me about do you know what's up <laughs> next for you? Do you know what's Yeah, the I'm going are? into the Tom Murphy's. Are you? Yeah. That seems, we spoke briefly to Rory Nolan about it. Yeah. It seems like it's going to be an I don't know what project. it's going to be like. <laughs> I know what's going to, I'm going to enjoy, I'm going to have the, not the best crack out of it as I possibly can. But it's, it's some project, yeah. I can tell you. 
it seems like a massive undertaking. Oh yeah, and it, they're they're not like happy place. <laughs> but I I don't know how they're going to go down. We're going twice to America, with right? And they are rough, like particularly whistle in the dark. Yeah, that's rough. Stuff. Heavy going, heavy going. And people were saying after Big Maggie, God, that's. You know, she's a hard woman. She's, you know, and that's rural life. They ain't seen nothing yet, baby. <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant, John. Well, I think uh, I'm, I'm absolutely delighted that you're going to be part of that. I can't wait to see you. Know, yeah, I, yeah. I and just, we have fun. a huge rehearsal period. It starts rehearsal, I think, in two, no, three weeks' time with Whistle in the Dark. Right. Or it might be even two weeks. And then they, they rehearse for three weeks and then the other famine and conversations on the homecoming start rehearsing. And then it goes and we rehearse, I think, for two weeks here and then four weeks in Galway and then there's a five-week tech. I mean, it's, it's huge. A five-week yeah, tech? Five, no, it might be. It's huge. Long right, period. Okay. I think it's seven weeks in Galway we have all together after it. Wow. Five weeks. You know, I mean, we're doing, well, three Plays. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So if you have a six-week rehearsal or a five-week rehearsal period, well, you're talking fifteen weeks. Do you yeah. know what I mean? You have to give every. You have to get get them all up course, to a yeah. certain level. Do you know what I mean? But because we're doing them all together, everything has to be done together. Do you know what I mean? The tech has to be that long. It's going to be an amazing. Experience. It is going to be amazing. Well, I can't wait to catch yeah, it. John, yeah. I'm really looking forward to seeing it. Thank you so much for coming in to have a chat to us. That was absolutely brilliant. Thank was you so it? much. I don't know. Was it? <laughs> it was absolutely brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> what did I tell you? The guy is an absolute legend. Uh, John is such a wonderful guy to be around. I've had the great privilege and, and honour of working with him a couple of times now, uh, often on the road, touring around the country playing in, in, you know, like he said, theatres that he's been playing in for 30 or 40 years now, nearly at this stage. Um, he's just such a super guy, such a great influence to have on any show. And he, in fact, he was on one of the, the very first shows I did after leaving uh, drama school when, when I, I went and did Romeo and Juliet with Second Age. And he was just such a great guy to have around, but really a great guy to watch. If you just have the sense to sit back and watch these guys who are, you know, that bit more experienced and just been around the block those few extra times, such a great wealth of knowledge from him. Uh, And even almost more importantly, just a great guy to be around. I wish John nothing but the best, and I know he is going to be absolutely stellar in that Murphy project. So that brings us to our usual weekly roundup of what is going on around the country. And mercifully this week, it is a little bit more balanced about what's going on around the country and not just around the greater Dublin area. So at the moment in Project Purple, directed by Edwina Casey, is on uh, and the second age production of the Scottish play is on at the Helix and I believe it's then travelling on to Galway and will be continuing on around the country. Keep an eye out for that. Um, the Goddess of Liberty by Karen Ardiff, which Guna Nua are doing at the moment, is currently out in Tala and will be touring down to the Bell Table in Limerick. So get over to that if you get a chance to. Um, Faith Healer by Brian Friel who, as we all know, is the greatest playwright of all time, is playing at the Viking Theatre at the Sheds over in Clontarf. Da is at the gate, continuing there with uh, the wonderful Tyg Murphy, he of Naked Story fame on this podcast, and the brilliant Owen Rowe. Bookworms is continuing at the Abbey, as is Love All at Bewley's Cafe Theatre, getting great reviews there. Uh, Sweet Dreams Mr. Heroin is at the New Theatre in Temple Bar. That'll be followed by a world premiere of a new play called Treading Water. Rough Magic have Plaza Suite at the Gaiety, and Sonia Kelly's show in a bag show, The Wheelchair on My Face, is still on its nationwide tour. Keep an eye out for that. As we move down to Cork, um, Blue Raincoat have Rhinoceros uh, at the Everyman. Cora Fenton is performing in Merry Motorhead by the brilliant Marco Halloran that is at the Cork Arts Theatre A Play on Two Chairs by Michael West has just transferred from Project in Dublin down to the Half Moon Theatre and also something that I wanted to mention uh, a new development from Corkadorka who are doing great things down there in terms of getting this new website up and running which is called theatredevelopmentcentre.com and they have this whole forum section there uh, to discuss all things about Irish theatre and what's going on and they've provided a link back up to our podcast here so if you get a chance at all go and check that out that's theatredevelopmentcentre.com 
forumsforum.com and to get to the forums it's just add the forward slash forums there at the end also up in Belfast at the moment Uncle Vanya in the version by Brian Friel who as we all agree is the greatest playwright of all time that's on up at the Lyric Theatre at the moment starring Conleth Hill and the awesome Declan Conlon who is one of my all time heroes so if you fancy a trip up north that's the place to go so look that is episode 16 in the books we will be back next week for another chat with one of Ireland's leading theatre makers this has been the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast for Angus Og McAnally I'm Angus Og McAnally we'll see you next week <laughs>